The reading is from John chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I can find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has claimed to be the Son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You, would, you have, would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, here is your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed it when it was being read for us just now, but today's reading is shot through with language about power and examples of the use and misuse of power. There are symbols of power in there. We have a crown, we have a purple robe like the emperor would wear, we have a judgment seat. There are examples of structural power, appeals to the law, appeals to God, appeals to the emperor. And at every turn, this language of power that we have here in this passage is subverted and questioned and deconstructed. So this morning, I want us to think about power and its use and its misuse, its symbols and its structures, and its relation to us as disciples of Jesus. Many of us who have come from a Christian background have a perspective on power that is in some sense 
uh, that, that power is in some sense inherently corrupt or corrupting. Christians are often quite suspicious of power and language around it. We've come to believe that power is the antithesis of the gentle Jesus, meek and mild that we've been taught to worship. We've been told that we should forsake all the temptations of power in our quest for a higher, more spiritual way of being that following Jesus opens before us. Well, I want to question that orthodoxy this morning, and I hope to show that not only is power not inherently immoral, but that for us to be the agents of God's coming kingdom of justice and peace, we need to have a far more open and honest conversation about power and how it functions in the world and in our lives. And I want to suggest that a bit like its close relative money, power is neither inherently good nor evil. Rather, its morality is determined by how it's used. So firstly, let's bust a couple of myths about money and power. It is not true that money is the root of all evil, and neither is it true that all power corrupts absolutely. Rather, starting with money, uh, in his letter to the young Timothy, St. Paul says the following. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. It's not quite the same, is it? And similarly with power, that little quote about power corrupting, William Pitt the Elder, the then British Prime Minister, said in a speech in the House of Lords in 1770 that unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it, something which Lord Acton coined into the more popular incarnation of this phrase, writing in 100 years later in 1887 that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. So my point is that neither money nor power are in and of themselves evil and corrupt. Rather, they can both be misused in the service of corruption and evil, and they do need to be handled with care, lest they tempt us into sinful avarice and domination. So, let's, uh, I'm not going to go on about money anymore this morning, that's a sermon for another day, but let's think a little bit more about power and what a Christ-like approach to power might look like, both in terms of our relationships with one another and the way we seek to address the powers that be out there in the wider world. And I'm going to be drawing and coming back to and circling back to our passage as I do this. So to help us in this, I'd like to introduce four kinds of power. And my suspicion is that for most of us, it's only the first of these that we tend to engage with when we think of what makes something or someone powerful. And this first kind of power, this very pervasive kind of power, I'm going to call power over. Power over. This is the kind of power that is implemented by the use of force, coercion, domination and control. 
It's the kind of power that is reinforced by fear. And the key thing about power over is that it treats power as if it were a finite resource. If I have more power, power over, you have less. If you have more power over, I have less. In mathematical terms, it treats power as what is known as a zero-sum game. This is where advantage for one side involves an equivalent loss for the other side. It's a bit like cutting a cake, where there's only so much cake on the plate. If one person has a larger slice, then there's a bit less for everyone else. This is what power over is. Power over has winners and losers. It's like a game of chess or a race. Someone wins. We're programmed to think of power in this way. So, my MP has more power than I do. Putin has more power than Zelensky. The preacher has more power than the congregation. I speak, you listen. The rich have more power than the poor. The educated have more power than the uneducated. White people have more power than people of colour. This is the way our society has structured itself and these are the lessons that society wants us to, to hear. And we can see many examples of power over in our reading for this morning. Pilate has power over Jesus. He has him flogged and mocked and questioned and then potentially released, but not. And in the end, he has him executed. But the emperor has power over Pilate. And the chief priests start off with less power than Pilate, but then by appealing to the law and the emperor, they gain power over him as he loses power and he in turn becomes afraid of them. We can see how the balance of power sort of swings within this story from John's Gospel of Jesus' trial. And it, it kind of goes backwards and forwards between the various characters. And as some of them gain power, others lose it. And you can see that power over zero-sum gain playing out. Some gain, others lose. They vie for power over each other. And we can see this in our world and in our lives. This is how the world works, or at least this is how we've been told the world ought to work. And we can see this kind of power in church life too, as people take power over others within congregational life. My former colleague, Roy, Roy Kersley, wrote an amazing book on church, community and power, in which he reflects on power over as a force in church life. I'm just going to read a couple of uh, short quotes from his book for you, because I couldn't find a way to say it any better than he does. He says, Church as a living community cannot afford to be casual or complacent about something as formative for its life together as power. It must be alert to power's pervasive presence, the elephant in the room which no one talks about. And once awakened to the fact that power relations and strategies are indeed dangerous, church has to avoid falling back into any form of denial concerning the sociological reality of power at work within it. Especially 
Roy says, church should take note of the hidden levers of power that in a crisis can suddenly clunk into action or defiantly be shifted into a tactical off position. He goes on, the uncomfortable truth is that power in churches often serves as the real cause of change, whether positive or negative. Even in our highly democratized society, power rather than policy often still turns out to be the single most decisive factor in strategies developed by small groups. It can arise as the most immediate and pressing factor in every undertaking, despite accompanying solemn discussions about theology, finance and management. Power, this slippery element of human relations, frequently manages to mutate or reincarnate in some form. Power is possibly the element that is least understood, explored or explained in groups like churches, even though it is pervasive. Time and again, it is the determining issue, even around such core activities as mission, worship, pastoral care and sacrament. If you want to get to grips with a church, it's worth thinking about where the levers of power are in that church and asking the question of whether they're in helpful and godly places or whether they're being used in ways that manipulate and control. So there we have it. Power over is, I think, always fundamentally problematic. It is the dominant conception of power in society, in institutional life and in churches. And its zero-sum game approach inherently diminishes some whilst advantaging others. But thankfully, power over is not the only power game in town. London Citizens, the community organising network that Bloomsbury is part of, suggests that the antidote to power over is what they call power with. When someone is trying to dominate you, coerce you or control you, you can resist by building power in collaboration with others, by building power through relationships. Power with is built on respect, mutual support, solidarity and influence. Power with builds bridges within groups, across differences, and it can lead to collective action. And if, as Christians, we are to reject and resist power over as our model of power, and I think we should reject and resist power over, surely we can embrace the concept of power with. This, after all, is the kind of power that Jesus built throughout his ministry. At Jesus's temptation, he resisted the offer of power over. You remember the story of Jesus engaging with the devil after his time of uh, fasting in the wilderness. He was offered power over in a political sense, in a religious sense, in an economic sense. The devil tempted him to take that power and have it over the world. And Jesus refused because he said that his kingdom will not be built through domination and fear. And instead, Jesus walked out of the wilderness and back into society having rejected taking power over. And the very next thing he did was he started calling disciples 
He built a community. He invested in meaningful relationships. He built power with others, not over them. This is the model of Jesus. And in our passage for today, I don't know if you noticed it, the disciples are notably absent. They've been silenced by fear. They've been scattered by anxiety. But they will re-emerge. And the community that began with Jesus and these few fragile, devoted disciples will grow to discover strength together, the power to act collectively, the, to challenge the monolithic institutes, institutions of powerful domination in the ancient world. I would say it is no surprise that almost all of the great social justice movements in the last 2,000 years have had their origins in religious convictions because it is as people give their allegiance to one another working together to subsume their individual will to power in the interests of the common good it's then that possibilities for new and better futures emerge as power over is undermined by the greater force of power with Think of the, the trade union movements. Think of the ways in which, it's not just Christians that do this, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying it is, but beginning with churches, so many of the great social justice movements have taken root in society and have been a blessing to people beyond the church because people grasp what it is to take power with rather than power over. This is why I'm so passionate about our involvement as a church in the work of Citizens UK. This is why it was so amazing to be part of that action this last week in Parliament Square, as we brought the organised power of community to bear on the key instrument of power over in our land, our Parliament. To articulate a challenge for justice for those who are living within work poverty, as they care for the sick and vulnerable in society. Now, here we have to pause for a moment and ask a question. Did our display of power with, our power together, succeed in getting a real living wage for health and social care workers in England? And the answer, of course, is no, or at least not yet. One of the sayings of community organising is that you get the justice that you have the power to demand. And although we got attention and we got some significant commitments from politicians, there is more to be done before that particular justice that we are aiming for can be achieved. And although like the disciples at the trial of Jesus, we may have scattered back to our homes and our communities for a while, we will come together again more powerfully in the future and the world as it is will take one step closer to becoming the world as it should be. Or as Jesus might have put it, the kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven and it will do so as we keep the faith and continue building power with others, not over them. So, power with and power over. But there are two further aspects of power that I'm going to draw out from our reading for this morning. The third kind of power I'm going to call the power to. 
This is the power to act, the power to make a difference, the power to create, the power to achieve. This is the power that each of us deserves, the power to be, the power to exist, to love, to live in freedom. And this is something that if power with is successful, can belong to each of us, whoever we are. The thing is, power it turns out is not a zero-sum game. Empowering the poor and the marginalised and the disenfranchised is not about taking power from someone else. This really can be a game where all are winners. It's a bit like education. One of the most effective tools in building power too in communities and in society is educating people. Educating more people does not mean uneducating the people who've already got education. You don't lose out by educating everyone. And despite the fears of lowest common denominatorism, widening access to education has proved to be one of the most enabling factors in getting individuals from across the social spectrum the power to be, the power to determine their own lives. And here I want us to consider for a moment not the characters in the story of Jesus' trial, or even those strategically absent from it, but rather those for whom this story was written in the first place, the community who first received John's gospel. This was a Christian community existing some 50 or 60 years after the events of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And they had separated from their parent religion of Judaism. They were no longer worshipping in the synagogues. And their community was made up of a mix of Jews and Gentiles, so it was culturally, ethnically and religiously diverse. And as they had separated from Judaism, they'd lost the small legal concessions that the Roman Empire had granted to the Jewish people in terms of freedom of religion. In other words, the original recipients of this gospel were a people whose power to, whose power to be, was severely curtailed. And in the gospel's deconstruction of power over, and in its description of a new community who shared power with, we find the writer of this gospel encouraging his readers that their route to the, a recovery of power too lies not in the will to power, but through a rediscovery of the collective power of their community. And the church today would do well to remember this. It is not for us to cry foul every time we perceive some slight against us. Those kind of Christians who see every freedom for another as a diminishment of their own rights are falling into a trap here. It should never be for Christians to defend their own rights by diminishing the rights of others. I have Christian friends on social media who bang on about the fact that Christians are under fire because we're granting more rights to Muslims or Christians are under fire because we're including the LGBTQ community in church life or Christians are under fire because they're making concessions on issues around race. And I just think you are absolutely missing the point of what being a Christian is. We're not in this to defend our rights against others. 
Rather, Christians should be at the forefront of arguing and taking action to establish the rights of all people to have the power to be. That's our role in society in the name of Christ. Christendom, the deal that Christianity made with the empire under Constantine, that was a selling out of the vision of Jesus as the followers of Jesus sought to take political and established power over. The true path to the power to be is not found in Christians taking power over others. It's found in a recovery of the power that's found in collective action as we stand alongside others who are different to us, fearlessly taking our place in the world, not to dominate it, but to love it and to see it brought into a better place. Which brings me to the fourth and final aspect of power that I'd like to draw from our reading this morning. We've deconstructed power over and we've seen how the alternative is power with and we've seen how this can unlock the power to well finally we come to power within this is the sense of your own capacity your own self-worth in our passage this is exemplified by the actions of Jesus it seems that everyone has power over him from the chief priests to Pilate to the empire of Rome itself. And yet, Jesus, for all his apparent powerlessness, is the one person in this story whose power cannot be threatened because his power comes from within, not from without. Edwin Friedman, the Jewish rabbi and specialist in family systems therapy, calls this power within the differentiation of self it describes the capacity of a person to be so grounded in their own sense of who they are before God that they are not threatened by forces beyond themselves you can see this in the way Jesus responds to Pilate first refusing to answer him just sitting there quietly his own man and then when he does speak he speaks to critique the very basis of the power that Pilate thought he had and if I'm honest this is the power that I most aspire to the power to be most fully myself within myself not answerable to the power of others, whatever it may be and wherever it may come from. Because I know before God who I have been created to be. We feel pulled about in our lives, don't we? People take power over us. It's scary, it's threatening, it diminishes. The example of Jesus here is that before God, his power within was unshakable. Graham Stewart says that power within involves people having a sense of their own capacity and self-worth. It allows people to recognize their power to and their power with 
and to believe they can make a difference. And in our church community, I want to suggest that we need to nurture power with and we want to nurture power within and we want to nurture power too and we want to resist the temptation to grasp power over and in our engagement with the wider world we should aim not to maximize our power over other people but rather to always create the conditions where power can be shared widely this is why i'm a baptist it's why i believe in church meetings because actually in this church the power is not with me the power is with the church members and that's the way it should be so to conclude, as Severin Bruyne and Paula Raymond put it in their book, Nonviolent Action and Social Change, the purpose is to create the conditions in which each individual's opportunity to exercise power is maximized in the context of the larger community. Or as Jesus put it, you would have no power unless it had been given you from above. The only power we have when it comes down to it is knowing who we are before God. Everything else stems from that. As we move into a time of prayer. Hang on, Duncan, we, we can't hear you, I'm afraid, just yet. Okay, I'll wait a moment. Are you able to hear me now, Dawn? Just trying to figure it out. Okay. Oh, we can, can now you hear, hear me you. now? Yes, we can. Great, thanks very much, Dawn. So as we move into a time of prayer, we offer thanks for the many ways in which prayer provides us with fresh perspectives. It helps us to reflect. It reminds us of the things that are important. It can push us towards changes in our thinking and our behavior. It's both a privilege and a challenge. We can never be perfect at prayer, but in this season of Lent, we ask to become more prayerful more connected and prepared to offer God a more central place in our lives. We seek courage to bring before God the particular ways in which we let other people down, breach our values and act in ways that cause harm to ourselves. Forgive us and give us clear guidance on better ways of doing things. We pray for our community thinking especially of those who are worried about rising costs associated with food and fuel. We recognize that this is a difficult time financially, both for many individuals and for institutions, including our church. Give us wisdom on how to prioritize our goals within the resources that we've been given. <clears throat> this is also a day of prayer for Ukraine. So with that occasion in mind, I therefore invite us to join the prayer which has been shared by the Archbishops of Canterbury and York for that country and its people. 
God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all those who fear for tomorrow, that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those with power over war or peace, for wisdom, discernment and compassion to guide their decisions. Above all, we pray for your precious children at risk and in fear that you would hold and protect them. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen. <laughs>